This is Aliens and Artists, part one of our conversation with Jim Semivan. I'm Stuart Davis. Jim worked for 25 years at the Central Intelligence Agency's Directorate of Operations, both overseas and domestically. He was a member of the CIA's Senior Intelligence Service. He also co-founded To The Stars Academy. He was a hippie, believe it or not, in his early days. And he is also an experiencer of contact with non-human entities, which we discuss at length among myriad other topics. It is a fascinating dialogue, which begins with his major contact event in the early 90s. I'm still reluctant, and as I stated on Coast to Coast, I'll give you the, like, the basic outline. I, I, um, I don't want to get into some of the particulars uh, just yet. I have reasons for that, uh, and they're mostly because um, I'm still working on this with some people, trying to determine exactly what happened and uh, if there was uh, things going on behind it that I, I wasn't aware of say 10 years ago that I might be aware of today. But I, I mean, I'm more than happy to address it. It, it, it. it occurred in 90, either 91 or 92. I'm not a hundred percent sure. Um, you know, back in, back in those days is, you know, the abduction phenomena really started to begin it. I think around the seventies, um, uh, at least the modern, uh, you know, cases. And then uh, they probably went up until the late 90s. And they still happen today, certainly. Um, but I think between the 70s and the 90s, most often, we see more of them happening in the late 80s and, and mid 90s to mid 90s, late 90s. And that seemed to be the like some kind of a crazy rush of these things happening. Uh, but now I woke up one morning and uh, saw some entities. And, and I'll say that, uh, you know, it, it clearly, uh, wasn't I wasn't in any kind of a liminal state I wasn't I mean I know very well what lucid dreaming uh, you know is and what vivid dreams are and you know and I know all about you know riding the mare and and things along those lines this was nothing like it at all uh I was not in a hypnagogic state it was I was completely awake um uh and saw what I saw and they were really odd looking. They weren't grays, uh, and they were a completely different type. I had, when I described him to call him Kelleher at one point, he named them for me. He called them the Bibendi, uh, which is after Bibendum, you know, the Michelin man, because they, they had a, a similar kind of look. They weren't fattering like that, but they had a type of armor on them, uh, black body armor. But, but uh, that, it left some physical marks on both me and my, uh, my wife, and uh, my wife more so than me, although, although I had something significant, and, um, and then consequently some other physical, uh, I don't want to say ailments, but physical uh, uh, residue uh, over the years. And interestingly, uh, you know, I, I wasn't afraid, uh, and neither was my wife. My wife doesn't remember any of this, by the way. It was all came with me, and there was a few distinct parts to it. There was an entity present towards the end um, that seemed to be with us, which was very odd. And, you know, after speaking with you at our little conference we had out west, um, it could very well have been a mantid. I, I don't know, or a tall gray, one of the two. I, I could never see it. It was just behind me. I sort of got the feeling it was behind me. But nevertheless, um, I'm one of those guys that kept files, medical files. And ever since I 
got married, I had my wife's medical file and my medical file, and I kept them all. And, you know, after this had happened, we had the, what Robert Hastings, you know, UFOs and nukes fame, like to call them meh response. I was like, eh, you know, what are you going to do with this? I don't know what the hell to do with this. And we just sort of let it go. We had friends of ours come over, some in the medical field. And, you know, my wife had an implant, it looked like an implant, it certainly came out of her face. Um, I'll let it go with that. And we had them look at it and we couldn't, nobody could figure out what it was. But uh, it wasn't until later on when I ran into John Alexander uh, at a conference, an energy conference up in New York, uh, energy healing conference up in New York. I recognized him and we, had, we got to chatting and then John came down and visited us at our house and then he uh, interviewed us and took a, took a, a film, my wife and I. So that led to uh, Hal Putoff and um, Jacques Vallée and, and then and a whole host of things happening after that. Uh, people coming to our house and, um, and we became part of a program um, studying this, uh, other intelligence and military officials and stuff. So it was very real. Uh, I, I, I look at it as real. I, I don't call it an abduction experience only because I don't know exactly what happened. It a classic experience. Uh, it was close to it. It had a lot of the certain themes of a classic abduction experience, but it wasn't as, um, uh, I, I wouldn't say frightening um, as it was uh, intimidating to a certain extent. Um, and it did, it did, uh, you know, it's funny. You, you asked me a question or, uh, you know, you sent me a question on an email and you said, how has that changed? Has that changed you in any way? And initially I would have said no, but then when I thought about it, I said, yeah, it is. I was very angry. Uh, uh, not when it first happened, but when I learned about it and what it, actually could have been then I became very angry I, I looked at it as a human rights violation and then I sort of I, I don't know I was like tempered you know I just it just didn't hit me it didn't it didn't make any major changes in me uh, I mean like most abduction experiences do people after a few years you know change the way they view life and their outlook I've always had the same outlook um, you know always been reasonably spiritual uh, and uh, so it didn't give me any knowledge except the knowledge of this particular incident and what it may mean. So maybe that, maybe that's, maybe there is something, I guess. I don't know. Certainly got me talking about it uh, later on, recently, actually. Yeah, which I'm going to ask about. But for the moment, I feel like it's emotionally powerful, this anger piece you've had. When we were hanging out in California, we talked a good bit about agency, autonomy, the human being as a sovereign soul. And I'm wondering how your anger factors in your experience. How has that part of it aged for you? Decades have transpired since the event. Has that emotional element around sovereignty modulated over time? Uh, you know, it's funny. I, I, uh, that's, it's an excellent question. It really is. And, and I know a lot of people who went through uh, an abduction experience all of them, certainly, but a lot of them, it really has transformed their lives. Yeah, my good friend, my dear friend, Chris Bledsoe, it's made, uh, you know, a huge, uh, huge difference in his life. Um, he has become this, well, he always was, a, I think, a, a deeply religious man. I think now he's a very deeply spiritual man. Uh, he has healing qualities. He uh, just absolutely lovely, and he credits the experience he had, which if you ever 
heard it in great detail, it was harrowing to say the least. In, in my particular case, um, I, I, I still retain it maybe, and I'm not sure whether this is good or bad, but I still retain a degree of um, anger about it. Uh, anger in the sense that um, I wasn't asked um, uh, I didn't sign up for this. Now I know some people say, well, in another lifetime, you may have done that. Well, that may be the case. I don't know, but, but as far as I know, I mean, you know, the contract has changed. I mean, you know, I, mean, I didn't, didn't want this to happen. I certainly didn't want it to happen to my wife and, uh, it did take a toll on her. And so I sort of look at this and I quite change that. And this whole idea of sovereignty it's a very big issue, and it, 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 it's, not only, it's an issue not only on a you know, person-to-person, individual um, sense, where somebody violated what you consider to be you know, your autonomy and your sovereignty over your body, uh, over the way you live your life. And then if you can even you know, move that up a little bit and talk about sovereignty uh, in a, in a the government itself or the world, how we, how the world views itself and that we're not really in charge of, you know, our reality and, and who we are and that decisions we make aren't really made by us. They're maybe possibly made by somebody else or at least guided by somebody else. That, that is, um, it's pretty, pretty scary when you think about it, uh, that we're really not in control. Now, if you can get a, you know, a Zen mind about this and say, well, maybe that's our problem, that we think we're in control, we shouldn't be, and that we should just surrender, you know, in the Eastern sense, uh, surrender to this or surrender to whatever this is. But then we have to assume that it's actually good. I'm not ready to make that assumption yet. It's powerful and momentous that you've been able to come forward and share this here and in the watershed moment on Coast to Coast with George Knapp. I think a lot of people are wondering some natural questions. Why did you decide to go public? What were the determining factors in you being able to do so? There's a widespread notion publicly that it's not possible for a person such as yourself to go public unless it's sanctioned by authorities, by the agency. So how were you able to come forward and are our assumptions about the agency you worked for even true? Is it a false narrative we've developed about former operatives and agents being able to speak freely that's a bundle of questions i understand yeah yeah i, I think they're, they're really really wonderful questions um uh first of all just let me begin i'll begin by saying i i'm uh, generally tend to be uh you know a quiet guy i'm a lot of fun when i'm around people but generally speaking i'm a quiet guy and i you know when when the story broke on uaps and we put that out i mean you know i Chris Mellon and, and, and Lou Elizondo, they just they were doing a fat, they were, did a fantastic job and they're doing even a, a more fantastic job now getting this up there. And I, you know, I first, and Tom, Tom DeLong was doing that too. And I, you know, I personally felt that, you know, there was no need for another voice in this. I mean, they were saying essentially uh, what needed to be said and to the right people. I, I did my own speaking to people in the intelligence community at, at a relatively high level uh, on this topic, um, letting them know what was going to be happening and what we're going to do when we won't discuss classified information. They were fine with that. They were, you know, they were perfectly fine with that, you know. Let us know if, you know, we can help in any way and, you know, fine. Now, they can't to a certain extent. Um, But it was also, it wasn't wasn't until our California trip. And, um, you know, we were there with a group of people, small group of people, 
fascinating people, uh, and I include you in that. I was I was really sort of bowled over uh, by uh, the uh, the intelligence uh, the intelligence there. I mean, it was just amazing. And then it was through conversations I had actually with Strieber of all people, and um, and I I say that only because I don't know Whitley very well, but he he just made so much sense, and he was chatting about this topic to discuss it and and to get it out there. And something just struck a with me. And then there were a lot of things you said that uh, things that um, uh, Jeff said, and, and um, uh, this was Jeff Kripal we're referring to, and that it really sort of hit home with me. And I said, you know, maybe I shouldn't, shouldn't worry about this so much and just get an outline out there and talk about it. And uh, I never saw myself as being important in any way, um, and whether this would actually make a difference one way or the other. Some people think that's the case, but nevertheless, eventually I'm, I'm, I will come out with this, but I, I can't come out with it right now. I'm still looking into some things with some people uh, in the government and um, trying to make sense of this. Um, but as far as like the agent CIA goes and other three-letter agencies in the government, that they didn't know a thing about this um, while I worked there. Uh, a lot of people, we had an informal group of people in CIA and in DOD that did talk about this. Uh, I would share my story with some of them. But the agency in general, you know, it's, there was no interest in this whatsoever. I had no interest in telling anybody. Um, I told some, a few senior people, but, you know, and, you know, and there are the agency, trust me, uh, one of the people you should have on your show, if, if you haven't already, I think it's John Ramirez. <laughs> I'm talking to him tomorrow. He is wonderful. You will like this man. He is one of the brightest guys I've ever had the pleasure of knowing. He introduced himself to me a few months ago, and he's got a lot to say, I think a lot more than I do about this, um, particularly about the abduction uh, stuff. He knows... Um, you know, his experience and my experiences were, were different in the agency. He was an analyst, a very senior analyst, and I was the sort of operations guy, and we lived in different worlds. Uh, and um, lived in the world, you know, where they would, you know, attend briefings, and you, you naturally run into things. My world was basically focused on spies and tradecraft and spycraft and things along those lines, where I didn't have that kind of an opportunity to mingle with um, some of the scientists and analysts that may or may not have been involved in this. And as I pointed out in Coast to Coast, I mean, there is no UFO at CIA. Um, there's still a weird desk to a certain extent, but, but I can't get into what, the, what, what, they are, what they go into. All I can say is some of the topic carriers are absolutely fascinating, but, but they're not necessarily involved with the phenomenon, maybe in a, in a peripheral way, but not really I know of. Um, that doesn't say there isn't some place it isn't doing it. I, I, I really don't know. It's a, the CIA operates on the need to know principle. Now, as far as CIA is concerned, once you leave CIA, you're, you, you're, you're, you're only, the only thing you have that you owe them, and, and, and rightfully so, is you sign an agreement when you join, you'll never discuss classified information or share that information to the public without their permission first. You, and you can't talk to uh, journalist and uh, talk about CIA in any way without getting it cleared. Because I didn't want to go to CIA and say, "Hey, look, I'm into UFOs and and I want to talk about this, that, and the other thing." And uh, uh, but I did go back to them, you know, numerous times. Said, "Look, I'm going to be on this particular show, and I am going to talk about this." And they would come back and say, "Fine." And John has done this himself. 
But the agency is, is fine about this. I mean, you know, and, and the reason why is that they don't know where to go to ask. I mean, there isn't any place anybody knows about. I was sufficiently high enough in the agency where I would have had a, a decent idea if there was a place. Um, but again, the agency is a very, uh, it's a very closed closed place. You don't have a need to know something, you know, you know, if somebody wants to talk to you about Chinese underwater warfare, you don't have an interest or you don't, your, your role or your job doesn't have anything to do with Chinese under, underwater warfare, Well, you're not going to know anything about Chinese underwater warfare unless what you read in the press. So that's how that's all set up. But no, I mean, the agency is actually, uh, it's a really good place to work. It's very open. The environment's open. Everybody's on a first name basis, including from the director on down. Uh, uh, it's uh, collegial. Um, people know not to cross lines. So having lunch with somebody from Russia House, you know, and, and I don't ask them, you know, what's going on, you know, in Russia House. They, you just don't do that. Uh, and don't ask me the same thing, you know, anything that I was doing, you know, some high tech operations and stuff. They would never ask me what I was up to operationally. And uh, uh, so that was sort of a given. And then the other given was you don't discuss politics. And, um, and that was sort of a no-no. And I think in my whole career, I never heard anybody discuss politics and CIA at, at any level. Um, now, friends, you know, having lunch might, might, you know, talk about politics. Generally, you, were, you stayed away from that topic. You worked for the president, the National Security Council, and that was it. Democrat, Republican, didn't make a damn bit of difference. You know, you just, you just did your job, so... It's a nice link to this facet in the CIA or agencies in general, which is around what experiencers can do to seek help if they're employed in one of these highly sensitive roles. If you happen to be a CIA operative and you're also an experiencer, what are the resources for people who find themselves in that unique coupling yourself with an interesting combination of anomalous experiences and a position of great sensitivity? What can be done for someone who finds themselves in that scenario? Well, yeah, that's, that's a very good question. Let me, let me, uh, let me answer it this way. Um, in, in CIA, you know, you go through, before you join, uh, you go through an incredible amount of testing. Uh, you know, normal, normal testing, you know, uh, you know, math, science, you know, English, you know, and, you know, and you, then you, you know, standardize tests. They're equivalent, like the sort of grad school kind of kind of thing, you know. And and then you have a lot of psychological testing, um, so they can see how you would fit. Um, and each area in the, if you're in you know the operational side like I was, you sort of have to fit a psychological mold in there. And and uh, and that's mainly because they don't, you know, they're going to spend a lot of money training you and they don't want you to have somebody in there and, you know, and then a year or two quit uh, because they couldn't keep up, uh, you know, either intellectually or, or physically uh, with the demands of the job. So it's, it's, they've, they've honed this pretty well. So when you get into CIA, you're pretty much a solid, you know, solid individual, uh, you know, reasonable, uh, you know, you're, you don't have any psychopathologies or anything. And I mean, you could be depressed or something like that. That's perfectly fine. You know, they just, they just treat that. It'll help you treat that. Uh, they also have, um, uh, you know, uh, a great employee assistance program. 
um, that if you develop, a, you know, a, a drug habit or you develop an alcohol habit, you know, there's absolutely no fear for your career. You you go in and you get it fixed, and they will take care of it. Now, it, you know, third time's a charm. I mean, like with anything, if they give you, you know, like three chances, and then the third time around, if you can't pull it together, then they'll ask you to leave. But they'll always help you find a nice, you know, a job afterwards or something going on. They don't want you to leave unhappy. So they're very, very uh, open-minded about all this kind of stuff. Now, as far as, you know, if I had an abduction experience and if it really bothered me, um, they wouldn't have anything to do with that unless it affected my job. So, uh, you know, so if I came to work every day and, and I, might, I was doing my job and it was perfectly fine, they wouldn't have a need to know. But if I felt like I had to unburden myself to them, I had, I don't think I'd have any problem at all going and telling them, uh, look, I had this really strange thing happen to me and this is what happened. Because they're coming from the basis that, look, you know, has, you know, has Jim experienced a psychotic break of any time? Well, they can tell right away whether I have. I mean, you know, you would go with a psychiatrist or a therapist and they would say, okay, nothing really happened here. He just had this very, very strange experience. So I think like most psychiatrists and therapists, they would probably figure out, you know, who you should be able, who, who you should talk to about this. Who's, so they would, what they usually do is they go find the person who specializes in this particular type of psychotherapy. They're actually okay. And uh, so they're, they're pretty open about it. Now, you could on about this. I think it'd be a great question for John, uh, uh, too, because John is an experiencer. Um, and I don't... I'm not sure whether he explained it to, his, you know, to the agency or not, but that'd be a good question for John. He's very open about this. Um, but no, I, I, didn't ha I wouldn't have any, any problem at all uh, if, if it had bothered me that much. I would have go gone off to somebody on my own, but if I felt a need to unburden myself to, to the agency for some reason, I, I wouldn't feel like there'd be any kind of a, a hurt to my career. As a matter of fact, you know, going in there doesn't hurt your career at all. I mean, you should go into a place and say, look, I have a psychological issue or I've developed a neurosis and stuff. They understand you're a very stressful job. Doesn't affect your promotions. As a matter of fact, it's very confidential. No one knows about it unless, you know, you're harmed to somebody. So that's so encouraging because there's a prevailing sense that once inside the military or an agency, that the secrecy is so rampant, there's not a lot of latitude to seek help if such situations arise. But what you're describing is an open, receptive culture with viable paths for folks to seek a remedy to these experiences, even if they're in the strange territory. Is that fair? That's absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's like any other organization. I mean, you, you, you go out of your people fairly and, and then, you know, turnover in CIA and, is very, very small. I mean, you know, that, you know, once you join, you know, generally people generally tend to stay. It's a very, very difficult place to work in a sense that, you know, there's a lot of, um, um, uh, a lot of very, very bright people. And, you know, when, you know, and everybody wants to get promoted, everybody wants to move up the chain, but you're working with, you know, everybody's in that 94 to 95 percentile, you know what I mean? So everybody, everybody's on that same level. And then there's some who are just, you know, golden girls and golden boys pretty quickly. And those are, those are rare, but most, most of the people who work there are pretty bright. So, and, and, um, and I, I found it to be very understanding, and compassionate. I've had instances where people that work for me had, uh, you know, uh, had 
had issues, uh, you know, uh, mental health challenges um, that were brought on by all kinds of things, you know, stress, trauma, there's a lot of trauma, you know, alcohol, and, you know, you treat it with as much compassion as you possibly can. uh, And, and then you go from there. And a lot of times, I think most times it works out. Another area people project a lot onto is the degree to which there is an orchestration or lack of it among agencies. Can you paint us a picture of what your experience was around this issue of how connectivity operates or does not among the various agencies? That's another very good question. I would say pre 9-11, it wasn't very good. Um, It it could be better now uh, too, but it wasn't very good or existent. Um, And the reason, the reason being that, you know, you, yeah, for instance, you had the FBI that was started like in 1906 or something, you know, and, you know, and, and then all of a sudden CIA comes around in 1947. Uh, CIA has a charter to do some things in the U.S., um, you know, and, and uh, then the FBI doesn't like that. And, and then, you know, everybody's vying, uh, you know, for, um, uh, you know, uh, what, what they do. I mean, the FBI, you know, does criminal law enforcement, you know, CIA doesn't do that. We don't have anything to, we basically look at overseas and, you know, CIA, I mean, CIA uh, does have a domestic element, but it's mostly working with the FBI. But there was before 9-11, there was, uh, I, I think you wouldn't say it's outright hostility, but it was just sort of a, a, a competitive environment in the military. And, um, and uh, I think, you know, sometimes, you know, uh, your mission overlap. And um, I think there would be, you know, inner service rivalries, just like there are inner service rivalries within DOD. Uh, and they still continue to this day, but they're not, uh, they're detrimental to a certain extent, extent, but I don't think they're, they're anywhere as near as bad as it used to be back in the, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. It, but 9-11 taught everybody a lesson. Um, and, and it took a while even after that, after 9-11 for people to really learn how to smooth over, you know, some of the problems. And uh, a new crop of people came in, the CIA, the FBI, it has helped considerably. Um, uh, they, they work together about as smoothly as I've ever seen. Um, now we have a director of national intelligence and, um, uh, you know, it's, uh, they have the National Counterterrorism Center there, the National Counterintelligence center or whatever it's called. And then, you know, uh, you know, there's counter proliferation thing going on, uh, you know, so they have these kind of things where they bring in people from all different areas and they all talk. And, and uh, I think it's worked out very, very well in that regard. And uh, so no, there, there, uh, there's, uh, there's, uh, um, I think a lot more camaraderie now, there's a lot more collegiality now. That said, there are still some rivalries. I mean, you know, uh, you know, there's, when you're dealing with information like sources and methods, you know, you have a spy or you have a satellite or something that's picking up information and, you know, you have to be very, very careful who you share that with. So sometimes you only share it with certain people uh, that have top secret clearances as opposed to secret clearances. So sometimes there's a little animosity there. Why can't everybody know all that? But again, it goes back to need to know. I mean, you know, although secrecy in general has gotten completely out of hand, uh, and I think uh, there was an article in the Washington Post just a couple of weeks ago talking about this again. This uh, and it was brought about by the internet. Uh, well, you know, the, the idea that when you were you know writing things up on your machine, 
you have a classified machine in front of you and most people will just hit secret and off it goes. And it could be just, hey, when you meet me for lunch, you know what I mean? It's not secret. Uh, uh, and then it goes into this giant repository and it, we're just getting, you know, terabytes of information constantly that's classified. A lot of it doesn't need to be. And the agency has done, a, I thought, a, a, a pretty good job. And a lot of other agencies have done a pretty good job trying to declassify this stuff, but it's overwhelming. And that stems from not having enough money to update systems, uh, to update these systems and to get it done quickly. And I don't know if Congress is going to allocate money to that, but um, I have a friend of mine who runs uh, the program uh, for that, oversees all classification in the government. And uh, He's told me that story numerous times. You know, it's just um, they're overwhelmed by the amount of classified data. And it's not all of it is that classified. And a lot of it could be easily declassified. It's just getting to it. And that's hard to do because it, it, it just takes a lot of money. And the software and the hardware that we currently have is woefully outdated to do that. Interesting part of the puzzle, simple pieces of infrastructure, the inertia of antiquated systems that have been in place for decades that haven't received funding for an update. I wonder how much of what we imagine to be some conspiracy that the agencies have this enchanted chamber where all the secrets are held. I wonder if you'd contrast that with the day-to-day -day reality of gargantuan outdated infrastructure, lack of resources, and antiquated systems. What can be said about our confusing or conflating these things? No, but that that's, uh, I, again, another you know, wonderful point to bring up. Uh, the age, you know, uh, the government is, and 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 just like our general infrastructure in the states, you know, bridges collapse and need, you know, roads need to be fixed. Well, you have this infrastructure within the government too that that constantly needs to be updated, looked at, and updated. Technology is moving so quickly um, that it's it's overwhelming uh, to a lot of organizations, particularly organizations that tend to be bureaucratic. And I don't mean that in a, uh, in, a, in a negative way, although it does have some negative connotations to it. It's just that you develop systems over a period of time that you know work. And you do that through trial and error. And then you have the system situated. And then all of a sudden, the system's going on for 10 or 15 years. And then it looks like the system really needs to be updated. And you sort of know it needs to be updated. But then you figure, well, it's going to cost, you know, oh, gosh, you know, $30 million or $50 million to update this system. And then you go to the powers that be and they said, you know, could we ask Congress for that? And Congress says, no, the budget's going to be cut this year, so you're not going to get that amount of money. Uh, so you, you rack, what they call rack them and stack them. You look at it and what are the most important things that we need to do? And it's always going to be mission, right? It's always going to be protection of the United States. Infrastructure takes a back seat. Administrative areas take a back seat. And that's what happens, you know, in our current infrastructure problems in the United States. All these other things take back seats. So, uh, so what happens is you get this buildup and you need to go in there, you know, every 30 years and, and clean the place up and get rid of the, you know, uh, the, the, the outdated uh, uh, modalities and put in something new and fresh. It's very, very... Uh, easy to say, very, very hard to do in the government, particularly in governments that have these entrenched bureaucracies. So, yeah, I mean, I, I just don't see any conspiracy at all. I have, you know, what I've seen was, you know, areas, and I this, this is what, you know, causes the big problem back in the 1940s when, when you know, the military and CIA decided, look, we 
can't have, you know, our, our names associated with, you know, UA, UFO phenomena and what have you, because it'll panic people. And, and they were afraid of, you know, Soviet disinformation, which Soviet's very good at, uh, and they still are, the Russians are very good at this. And they were also afraid of our telecommun telecommunication lines being jammed. Those were very, very real concerns. Um, so they developed this idea of like, well, we'll just basically call everybody, a, uh, you know, a weirdo who, who, who basically talks about this. And we'll ask the, the media and maybe Hollywood to sort of join in and sort of poo-poo this kind of stuff because it's, this is really maybe problematic for us. And, you know, don't forget, we were, we were you know, uh, we were, uh, you were too young for this, but I remember very, very clearly, you know, the, you know, duck and cover drills back in the 50s, you know, we were, you know, and it, that went into well into the 60s. And this fear of a nuclear annihilation, and it was something you you lived with, and so it, it was very real. And you know, communists, you know, you know, infiltrating the government, things along the lines. Whether that was true or not, I to the extent people say they were, I don't, I don't believe it now. But hindsight's always twenty twenty. But when you look at that, you know, and, and then it it just became entrenched. I don't think it was an official government policy that we you know, downplay UFOs, but it, it just sort of picked up some steam of its own and it became, you know, a, what David Huffer, this folklorist calls it a tradition of disbelief. You know, it's, it, you just, you just pick up these negative thoughts about something and they may not be true, but it keeps carrying on generation after generation. And then, you know, up until recently, you know, I remember when we had the videos come out, you know, on the New York Times and what have you, there were still people, you know, you know, green hat, little green men, tinfoil hat kind of stuff. You don't see very much of that anymore. And the last couple of years, you just don't. I mean, it's it's accepted now. The reality is accepted by a lot of people that these things are real. Uh, these UAPs are real and the phenomenon is real. And I think you, you'd really have to be something of a Luddite not, not believe that, or you, you just don't know the, the literature at all. So conspiracy, I don't know. There, there might be an angle here, a conspiratorial angle, you know, around the military industrial complex after World War II. We never had a military industrial complex, so we didn't need one. And it wasn't until World War II, we found out how far the Germans had gone ahead of us in some areas. I think that worried everybody. Um, we knew we were then going to be in a hot, well, hot cold war with the Soviet Union. Everybody was developing jet engines. They were working on all kinds of different technologies. And the only way you can do that is these organizations like, you know, private organizations, uh, defense contractors basically sort of set that up. They worked with specifically with the military and then that's how the military industrial complex came about. And that's what Eisenhower warned about. He said, look, this is a whole new situation, this, this blending of the military and the private sector that we have never seen before in our country. And it's absorbing a lot of money, all right, because the defense industry just started growing and growing and growing, where it never really did before. It was a very small part of our GDP. Now it's a, a, a nice chunk of our GDP. And well, how do you get out of that? Well, technology is moving so, so quickly forward. It's like a self-licking ice cream cone. You throw money into something and then, you know, new stuff comes out of it and then more money gets thrown in and then you have this thing going. So you have the UAP issue, which nobody wanted because it was a hot potato. Uh, nobody had any answers to it. They knew it was real. What the hell do you do with it? I mean, you can throw millions and millions of dollars at it and still come up with nothing.
But yet you got to answer to Congress and when they tell you, what is that, that $20 million I gave you to look into UAPs and you say, or UFOs, and you say, well, we've been looking, you know, for the last five years and we sort of think it might be this, but we really don't know. Uh, and they'll, they'll look at that and the next time the budget comes around, well, do we put more towards North Korea or, you know, Russia, or do we put more towards China or do we give to UAPs, which doesn't look like, you know, we're going to get any any further down the road with this thing now because our understanding of this potential technology, whatever this technology is, if it's even a technology, we'll we'll never be understand it. Understand it is a little beyond our ken. This gets away from you very very quickly, and you know, and having worked for the government for so long, um, this whole idea of a group, a cabal of people sitting at the top somewhere, you know, smoking cigars, you know, behind, uh, you know, closed doors and talking about, you know, uh, you know, uh, whether or not, you know, they're meeting aliens and all this kind of stuff, you know, th that to me just, it doesn't make any with the government that I know. Um, and they're mostly because things change fast. I mean, there's CEO, new CEOs of new corporations constantly, their upper echelons are changing, the military is changing, the intelligence community is changing. You would have to brief people upon people upon people over, you know, over the last 70 or 80 years. I mean, and nobody's leaked anything. No, that doesn't sound right to me at all. And, um, but, <laughs> but having said that, you know, is there a group of people, you know, that changes every so often that are in charge to sort of look at this and trying to figure out what it is? I, I, I don't know for sure, but I will tell you that I, 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 would, I would think that there is. Um, uh, you certainly can't have generals in the military in 1947 coming out and saying, this is real. We don't know what it is. We already had a Pearl Harbor six years before. We do not want another one. So what are you going to do? Everything in your power to figure out what this is. So you're going to start a program. It's not going to be a public program and it's not going to be something that you can share with anybody because you don't, you know, tell a friend, tell an enemy. So you're going to, have, it's going to be classified and it's going to, it's, and you're going to work at this until you find out what it is. And so, uh, you know, is there some kind of super secret government organization? I'd be shocked if there wasn't. This brings up the black world and what you're relating, you know, what move do you make if you don't have a good move to make? The perennial bind, the intergovernmental ontological chess game in which we've got high strangeness, some towering enigmas, and then that's alongside nuts and bolts stuff. What move does one make in that scenario? Richard Dolan and others have suspected a lot of this stuff has been moved to private corporations, etc., organizations that cannot be audited or interrogated by the government. Do you have a sense of this purported trend over the decades, craft, entities, tech, being shifted to the unauditable black world? And does this complicate matters for organizations like the CIA when it comes to UFOs, UAP, etc.? Yeah, it's a complicated issue. Um, let, let's, let's look at it this way. I mean, try to look at it simplistically, um, because that's generally how the government works. I mean, general, the, the government is going to try the, the easiest, best solution to a problem. Um, so let's say, you know, the government is, is, is proactive and reactive, but it's mostly reactive. 
So if uh, I'll give you an example um, uh, before I answer the question in general, we found out that the Soviet Union was looking into, you know, psychological, I mean, uh, I mean, psychical, you know, phenomena, you know, things like clairvoyance, telepathy, psychokinesis, things along those lines, and had been doing that since the 20s, 30s, 40s. And when we find that out, um, you say to yourself, if you're, you know, an intelligence analyst uh, or defense intelligence analyst, how far have they gone and why are they doing this? Why would the Soviet military be focusing on this? Well, you can imagine what the answers are. Well, they're trying to create a super soldier. They're trying to create, you know, a way for to brainwash people. They're trying to create a new technology based on these psi, you know, uh, elements. So you say, well, okay, we better figure that out. We better, we better, we can't let them get an advantage over us. Then you go ahead and you look into it and you're trying to basically find out what they're up to and they're trying to find out what you're up to and everything is classified and off it rolls. I mean, you know, Stargate program, you know, that Hal Potoff started basically began with that. Um, uh, why were the Russians using, you know, uh, you know, you know, psychic phenomena and, you know, they're going out on their silver cords and doing their version of remote viewing. But we had to do that, too. Was there an intelligence value to that? Was there any way you can militarize that or weaponize that? Because if that's what they're doing, you know, then, gee, we have to have, a, you know, uh, we have to counter that in some form or fashion. And that's generally what how the military works and how the intelligence mind works. So you look at the idea of UFOs and UAPs and you say to yourself, well, OK, here's this here's this phenomena that's showing up. We absolutely know nothing about it, nothing at all. And now we also know that, you know, that, well, OK, a lot of people reporting contactee, you know, uh, they're reporting their contactees with, you know, aliens and different types of alien beings. And you're looking at that and you're going, okay, um, uh, do we give that any credibility? Well, maybe yes, maybe no. Is, is that Russian? You know, because at, at the time, or Soviet is at the time, China wasn't in the picture really. Um, so you're looking at it and go, is that, that a Soviet, you know, you know, is that possibly, you know, are they landing people here or something? So you have to look at that. And then, to the idea that uh, if you're looking at UAP and you're a really good engineer and you're working for a defense contractor, one of the first things you're going to say to yourself is, can I build that? You know, would it be possible for me to build that? And that's exactly the same thing that the Russians and the Chinese and everybody else are saying, you know, could we actually do something with this technology? We don't understand it at all, but can we glean enough information that we can actually do something different. Um, we can't make our craft invisible, but maybe we can put stealth qualities. Maybe we can change the different type of, you know, a fabric we use and the uh, materials we use on aircraft to make them, you know, uh, less uh, the ability to absorb radar, I suppose, reflecting. So you're in this. You be, you get into this race, right? And so have this, and you're and the Russians want to know what you're doing along these lines, and you want to know what they're doing along these lines. So you have to protect that. And I think what happens is the, the military hands that off to private contractors because it's a long, arduous process. Um, and they'll say, make as much hay as you can out of this. Maybe they have you know materials or what have you, uh, and and so the defense contractors go in there. So they really can't come out with anything. They can't talk about it publicly. A lot of research is then being done. You know, uh, you know, uh, the classified research is being done on that. You know, they may get to a point where they discovered something, um, but you know, it, it, is it is it something you can announce? And most of the time, the answer is no. Um, and I think what is you you 
then you can get the public uh, who who sees experiences all this on their own you know nothing to do with the military they're actually witnessing these things and they're having experiences and contact experiences with these things and they're looking at the government and they're saying that the government will tell us you know you must know something i think the government is afraid because they don't know anything and 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 i don't and it's not a hit on them i mean it's how the hell can they possibly know something that's orders of magnitude greater uh, than anything we have on this earth. We can't explain whether it's this phenomenon is extraterrestrial. We can't explain whether it's interdimensional, whether it's ultra terrestrial, whether it's a form of reality that we're living in, that we're just now, our little brains, you know, is, are allowing some of it to filter in. Maybe, you know, for most people, they, this stuff wasn't filtering in before. There is no there there. There's no way to explain this in any way, shape, or form. It was like when the Stargate program was working, it was very successful. Not all the time. Some, some um, you know, um, uh, remote viewers were excellent, you know, 70, 80% credibility. Some of them maybe 10 or 20%, but we were never, ever able to identify the science behind what that is. And there's the other problem. It's these kind of things tend to be not, uh, they tend to be, you know, unpredictable and they tend to be, you know, unreliable at the same time. So those are the two basic foundations of science. So they don't really fit into science, right? Now they fit into quantum mechanics a little bit, but when you think about the fact that we don't have an ontology to discuss this, we don't have uh, a lexicon, a common lexicon where we can actually engage engage uh, you know people on this topic and discuss it we're discussing something so ephemeral so nebulous so amorphous it, it just defies description so people say well why can't the military or why can't the intelligence agencies come out and tell us what they have I, my personal opinion is i think they have some things and i think they understand a little bit about some things but for the most part they haven't a clue they haven't a clue now think about that what that means for the sovereignty issue, you now have the United States government telling you, well, they don't tell you actually, and and I think they're you know not ashamed. I think they just don't want to say it. We can't defend against this because we don't understand it, and this is way beyond our ken, and it may be way beyond our ken for you know hundreds and hundreds of years, if not another millennia or two. That's a that's a lot to think about. And, and uh, so I, uh, you know, I like to give the government the benefit of the doubt. I mean, they, they do a lot of dumb things, you know, and we can point them out, you know, they make stupid mistakes, but in, in some cases they're right on the money. They've done a great job of, of protecting us, protecting this, this country. And, and I think even the world, uh, you know, particularly the modern, you know, version in the last 70 or 80 years. So I like to give them the benefit of the doubt. Is something going on? Possibility, but I haven't seen any indication of that where it's some kind of, like I said, major cabal or conspiratorial stuff going on. I mean, and the other thing is too, I mean, let's just say for the sake of argument, the, the government has met with alien beings. What, how, how, how would you announce that? Um, I, I don't, you know, I, I think there have been, I mean, I know for a fact that there have been groups of people who discuss this with the government and have been for a while. What do we do? 
do we announce this or not announce this? Um, if it were true, I mean, I'm speaking hypothetically here. And the answer always comes up, no, we can't do that. Um, you know, uh, and part of it is because I think the psychological fabric that we live in, I mean, we, people of us, people like us who have been experiencers and know this topic and we've gotten used to it, uh, even though it might've been incredibly frightening in the beginning, but we've gotten used to it, you know, so you sort of live with it and you sort of understand it a little bit more and you're not as jarred by it. But I think coming out and just laying it out for the world to listen to um, might be uh, might be a bit much. Uh, uh, people always say, "Oh, we're ready for it. We're ready for it." Well, maybe not. And I'm not, you know, and I, 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 I don't, I'm, I'm agnostic on this issue. I mean, this is something that TTSA, when we first formed, talked about this a lot. Are we? going to open that box, that Pandora's box. And we've had a couple people that we were very close to in the government tell us, do you really want to open this up? Do you really want to scare kids? I mean, little kids, do you, you know, you have this whole system set up now with, you know, religious system set up, a social network set up, and all of a sudden you're going to throw, you're going to throw this thing into it, which is the biggest story of the millennia and you have absolutely no way to explain it and you're going to dump it into everybody's lap and you're going to expect them to do what thank you uh, and say thank you very much i appreciate your honesty and then everybody's basically losing it or they're going to their churches or synagogues and saying you know what do we do now uh what do we do now right therein lies the crux of this multi-dimensional riddle our timeline versus whatever timeline this non-human intelligence is on. We seem thus far to have had the luxury of working our own timeline, but I couldn't agree more that bureaucracy was never intended to metabolize high strangeness, for instance, and there's just a radical disjunction that can't be resolved between those two. But if we could circle back to the conundrum which is when we don't have a good move to make, what's our move? Specifically, the wild card being how and when this non-human intelligence aligns with or separates from our preferences as to how and when this stuff is disclosed or revealed. Do you have feelings on that wild card? What we've been talking about is mostly the stuff in our purview as human beings, and thus far we've been allowed by this non-human intelligence, ostensibly to maintain our equilibrium collectively, socially. It hasn't been radically disrupted. But the non-human intelligence discloses itself when and how it sees fit, to whom it sees fit, with impunity. How do you feel about that piece? This non-human intelligence, which has the resources and wherewithal, should it choose to upend our entire consensus reality, and yet it has not done so heretofore. How do you feel about that part? absolutely beautifully i i you know if you if you if you took a thousand people randomly and asked them to write their top 20 concerns they have in life right now just for them i i, I would seriously doubt and you would get more than five percent of the people putting uaps the phenomenon on that list and if it was it would be very low on that list in other words it wouldn't even rank in the top 10. So I think what's happening is, you know, we, again, because we deal with this almost on a daily basis, you know, we, we tend to think that this is a, 
this is a major issue. It, it, it is to a certain extent, but I guarantee you, most people don't think about this at all during their during their during their day. They get up in the morning. They have their morning ablutions, you know, they go to work, they come home, they got kids, they're worried about money in the bank, they got all kinds of issues. This is the last thing on their plate. Now, you know, and when you when you throw something like this, if you were to throw something like this out, uh, and all you're throwing, and you know that all you're throwing out is a big pile of nothing. It's like, this is what we know about it. It doesn't amount to a hill of beans. And it, it, it and knowing that it full well can have 99% of this you don't know about and you don't know the power or the control it might have then you got some very very big issues so this one jock valet calls it a control mechanism it it does have the ability to control how we view uh you know ourselves how we view our our planet our neighbors and what have you both culturally uh, culturally politically sociologically it's a huge it's a huge deal uh in thinking about so, and then when you, and I, I've made this point before with the phenomenon, and it's not helping. Um, it seems to speak to us in symbols, uh, and it, it seems to be inordinately complex, uh, deliberately so. Um, it's absurd, no sense whatsoever. I mean, you know, when I, when I think about these, um, and I include myself in this, trying to explain that to somebody. It's it's extraordinarily difficult. And and the problem is you're walking around and you're you you are like a wounded warrior, right? I mean, you went through this battle, this initiation, right? Which if you wanted to compare it to, you know, a, a Greek or a Roman initiation from the old mystery schools and stuff, but it is initiation. And you've gone through this hell, and some of them have not come out of that hell yet, and then some of them have and transformed beautifully. But nevertheless, it alters you and it's the rest of your life. You can't put it in a box someplace and walk away from it. So you're sort of there. But where is the phenomenon when you need it? Why isn't something coming down? Why isn't something tapping us on the head and saying, well, this is what it's really about? It's not doing that, which, which leads me to think that, that it's, it's operating, it operates uh, on a level that we don't or would not recognize. There's no morality here. There's no ethics here. There's a morality. There's nothing here. This is just something so completely alien, to use the term, um, that it can't relate to us or it doesn't think very much of us. None of the things, or you know, uh, or we just don't have the brain power uh, to basically understand this in any kind of way that would make us feel satiate, you know what I mean? That would make us feel good or whole or feel like this is part of that great chain of humanity, you know, that old medieval concept, you know, where, where you know, we get the love to God, you know what I mean? And man's right up there, then the angels. Well, where the hell does this fit in? You know, I don't know where this fits in. And that's very discombobulating. That is, and, and I think that's really what the problem is. The problem is you start talking about this, people start paying attention to this, and they're trying to fit it in. They're trying to fit it in their, their escape. And people are generally very orderly. They like an orderly universe. They like a Newtonian universe. They don't like a quantum universe. They're not used to that yet. You know, where where you know where you know reality is basically dictated by the observer. My lord, you know, what does that mean? Um, is it is the world based on intentions? You know, that if I intend something, that's that's reality changing. Uh, you know, is that going to change? I, I I don't know. It's an extraordinarily difficult concept 
to grasp and understand. And asking us, you know, to, to, to get to that point is, is very hard. But yet, we've experienced it, right? You've experienced it. You have a whole group of people who's experienced it. And, and they're left with really little direction uh, about where they're supposed to go, except for their, for their own inner strength uh, or their own inner guide, you know, that is telling them, okay, this is how you basically matriculate this. This is how you work through this. That's hard. That's a hard, hard thing to do. And, you know, I, I, my, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't feel sympathetic towards it. I, I, I guess my empathy goes out because it's not something that's uh, difficult, easy to, to deal with. Right in the guts of the matter here, just purely intuitively, do you feel the transrational enigmatic aspects of these phenomena may be attempting to act on humanity as a developmental driver, a teleological, there is a point to this, not one we comprehend yet, but let's say there would be a desired outcome in this scenario, perhaps unrecognizably exotic to our current developmental stations, but nonetheless, there's an intention shaping our evolution. That's scenario one, or scenario two, is the chasm between anthropomorphic to non-anthropomorphic consciousness, sentience, too vast for us to cognize or bridge. Do those make sense as parts of a question? It, it certainly does. And the answer is yes to both. Uh, I mean, to both sides. I mean, you know, we always look at this phenomenon, you know, anthropomorphically, right? We always look at it through human eyes. Uh, it, it, it's, it's like the, uh, you know, astrophysicists just say, well, it's impossible, you know, to traverse, you know, the universe, you can't go faster than the speed of light and all this kind of stuff. And aliens would have to, you know, it's like you look at them, century physics, that's the case. But what if this is 26th century physics we're talking about? You know, yeah, they probably can do that. And uh, so anytime you, you, you try to do that from our point of view, from a human point of view, you're going to run into all kinds of problems. And uh, so what, you know, again, what you're left with is is a big question mark. You know, is is this a control mechanism? Or, you know, are these entities or whatever they are, this cosmic force, or whatever you want to call it, this phenomenon, is it is it uh, you know a form of uh, you know uh, of God? Well, I would say God, and you know, in, in the larger context. Is it is it basically directing traffic for the human race? You know, for whatever reason, all right. Or is it a part of consciousness? Because when you, think about it, you know, we're all conscious beings. We don't know what consciousness is. I don't believe it's brain based. I believe that it's sort of you know non non brain based. It's, you know, it, it, but if consciousness sort of runs the universe here, and this is one big thing, we're all sort of connected, right? We're all any these energy patterns according to quantum mechanics. You know this force may keep us all together, but nevertheless, we're just energy fields. But if we're all fields, the entities or the phenomenon must be energy fields also. So we're part of that in some strange way, but it's a part of that that we don't understand yet or don't recognize. And maybe it's because of our brain, our filtering system is just not capable of being that aware. I mean, when we get into a car and we're driving down the highway at 75 miles an hour, 
there are literally thousands of things happening in our body at any given time. It's, you know, you're breathing, you know, the blood's going in and out of your arteries, um, nerves or synapses are firing, neurons are firing in your brain. You're seeing all kinds of things through your eyes, your optic nerve, you're picking up other cars, you know, the surroundings around you. And none of that is conscious, right? You're not conscious of any of that because if you were, you'd probably lose your mind. The brain basically says, you can own, I'm only focusing on one thing here. That's getting down this road without, without killing, not running 3,000 pounds of metal into another 3,000 pounds of metal. That's what it's focusing on you doing and getting to a certain place. But it won't allow anything else in. Well, maybe that's what's going on, uh, you know, that we're not allowed or our brain won't allow for us to take in awareness with a capital A, everything. I mean, back when I was growing up, I was in the 60s, I was a, I was a hippie, believe it or not you know, pierced ears, you know, tattoos, long hair and all this kind of stuff. And, and, and the whole big thing was then is becoming more aware, you know, and becoming more aware of, was just of your environment, you know, you're sitting at a table. Well, the, where, does the, where does the table come from? Well, it's made out of wood, but it's also an energy pattern. It's just a bunch of spinning electrons and molecules that's sitting in front of me. And even though it's inanimate, it really isn't inanimate, it's movement. It's made up of these things and I'm touching it and I'm interacting with it in some way. Well, is the phenomena part of that too? And uh, is it trying to tell us something? Are we going through a learning experience with it? I will say it's not doing that great of a job because it's, it, it sort of pisses me off when you think about it. You give me just a for now. People have died, you know, over this. You know, because the phenomenon isn't necessarily all good. Um, there are terrible things that happen uh, with, to people uh, who have these experiences. I'm talking about the hitchhiker syndrome, things along those lines. It's not, you know, I wouldn't say the majority, but I, I, there's, a, a, there's a certain minority of people that have an extremely difficult time with this. We met one in our little group and it's constant. And uh, uh, so things going on and I, uh, I can't wrap my arms around it. I, I, I wish, you know, I was, we had some kind of a stable understanding of it, but I think we're going to have to be left with, you know, what John Mack basically said, you know, I think when you're talking about abductions, he said, well, the most we can do is say it's a mystery. And I said, hey, and he said, I think, I think this is as far as we ought to go with that. Because once you start getting into interpretation and what have you and in speculation, I mean, they're nice stories, uh, but they're just stories, they're narratives in the end. Um, um, so I guess individually we're left with, with this to deal with this ourselves. And, and, and then, which is so important with the experience, your group, you take these individual, you know, experiences and you, and you blend them and you put them together with, with other experiences and you, you look for patterns, a, and you also try to, you know, uh, reinforce the other person that a, they're not alone and b yes, indeed, this happens. I had a, an email from a, a, a person who was terribly distraught. He said to me, you know, he's having these experiences. And only he told his wife and his son, and he was just didn't know what to make it. It was like, well, am I crazy? Am I crazy? Now, I didn't know whether he was pulling my leg. I don't think he was. And I went back and said, no, you're not. Actually, I suggested he join your group. Um, um, uh, you know, I said, because there's, there's safety in numbers and not that, not that I'm saying that there's any kind of thing you have to fear. I mean, I don't think this is existential. Oh my God, you know, uh, we would we would be in, in really bad shape. They do walk into this sometimes, particularly with skinwalk. You, know, you walk into this and you don't realize what you're walking into, and then this thing attaches itself, and it might 
not be evil. It just might be, you know, completely agnostic or apathetic, you know, or, or even insouciant where, it, you know, it's which actually has, a, a, it knows what it's doing, but it doesn't give a damn. And uh, so, well, there and so when I when I when people come up to me and they say oh is the government hiding something well and part of me would say gee I hope the hell they don't get into this because I don't want to know I mean you know I don't want to know that they don't know I don't want to know that my military and my intelligence agencies can't help me with this because if they can't help me where the hell do I go to my pastors or my priests or my rabbis or my imams can't help me either okay what about my philosophers well, I doubt that too well who do you go to who do you go to? I vote for you, Stu. I, I go to you. That's the first place I go. Be sure to catch part two of our conversation with Jim Semivan. For more information on Jim, check the show notes. I am that star most dreaded by the wise, for they are drawn against their will to me. Yet read in my procession through the skies the doom of orthodox Sophrosyne. I shall discard their major preservation, all that they know so long as no one asks. I shall deprive them of their minor tasks in free and legal households of sensation, of money, picnics, beer, sanitation, Beware all those who follow me are led on to that glassy mountain where are no footholds for logic, to that bridge of dread, where knowledge but increases vertigo. Those who pursue me take a twisting lane to find themselves immediately alone, with savage water of unfeeling stone, in labyrinths where they must entertain confusion, cripples, tigers, thunder, pain. The first wise man, to break down her defenses and profit from the vision that plain men can predict through an ascesis of their senses, in with rack and screw I put nature through a thorough inquisition. But she was so afraid that if I were disappointed, I should hurt her more, that her answers were disjointed. I did, I didn't, I will, I won't. She is just as big a liar, in fact, as we are. To discover how to be truthful now is the reason I follow this star, the second wise man. My faith that in time's constant flow lay real assurance broke down on this analysis. At any given instant, all solids dissolve, no wheels revolve, and facts have no endurance. And who knows if it is by design or pure inadvertence that the present destroys its inherited self-importance. With envy, terror, rage, regret, we anticipate or remember but never are. To discover how to be living now is the reason I follow the star. The third wise man. Observing how myopic is the Venus of the Soma, the concept ought would make, I thought our passions philanthropic and rectify in the sensual eye both lens flare and lens coma. But arriving at the greatest good by introspection, in counting the greater number left no time for affection, laughter, kisses, squeezing, smiles, 
and I learned why the learned are as despised as they are. To discover how to be loving now is the reason I follow this star. The three wise men. The weather has been awful. The countryside is dreary. Marsh, jungle, rock, and echoes mock. Calling our hope unlawful. But a silly song can help along. Yours ever and sincerely. At least we know for certain that we are three old sinners. That this journey is much too long and that we want our dinners and miss our wives, our books, our dogs, but have only the vaguest idea why we are what we are. To discover how to be human now is the reason we follow this star. That is for the time being. A Christmas Oratorio by W. H. Auden and for reasons I believe would be evident, feels like it bears some relevance to the topics at hand on this show. Nicely done, WH. Aliens and Artists is brought to you by The Liminal Muse, offering one-on-one work with me, Stuart Davis. Sessions include transpersonal hypnotherapy, contemplative practices, and creativity as a spiritual path. Click the link in the show notes to book a session. Also, The Experiencer Group, a private membership site for experiencers of anomalous phenomena including near-death, lucid dreaming, psi, mediumship, contact with non-human entities, and much more. Click the link in the show notes to become a member. And of course, above and beyond all, patrons and plusers. Yes, you saved me. If you like the show, become a patron or a pluser by clicking the link at the show notes. You get tons of exclusive content, entire episodes just for you, years worth of TV, film, comedy, music that's on my Patreon. It is a mountain of material. A lot of new projects coming up this year, which will always be rolled out first for patrons and often for them alone. What's it feel like to be a patron or a pluser? Enchanted Patreon. Sensual Patrons. Passionate StuartDavis.com. Love Patreon Sex Patrons. Fleshly StuartDavis.com. Enlightenment Patreon. Carnal Patrons. Naked Patreon. Nude StuartDavis.com. Peace Patreon. Fulfillment Patrons. Insight StuartDavis.com. Manhood Patreon. Womanliness Patrons. Erotic. StuartDavis.com Heavy Petting Patreon Non-Duality Patron Chasm Spasm Orgasm That's true. StuartDavis.com
Everything